Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Thank you so much for joining me it was lovely that you reached out on Instagram I think that it's always so nice when people message you to like say oh you know I really want to speak or whatever um and particularly I guess this week is it this week is it awareness week or is it an awareness day I think it's It's Tuesday so it's a day yeah mental health yeah so mental health day and it's it's really interesting actually um like I've seen a lot of people this year focusing on like rather than awareness like this is not an awareness day it should be an action day and Mm -hmm. I think it's quite interesting how like it's almost I think a real positive rather than being like oh we need to take action rather than just being aware it shows how far we've come because before we weren't even aware that people were struggling with their mental health yeah exactly I think we are getting to a point now where things are going to change but it's just happening very slowly Mm mm-hmm uh, yeah. I think the um, I think the title of this I can't remember what it's called, but you know that like the focus of this mental health awareness day is mm-hmm. um, it's a universal right or a human right. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that's what it is. But I like to just talk about everything. I think it's you know despite what the topic is this year, mm-hmm. um, I think it's really important that we do talk about everything alongside that. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I'm so very grateful that you're here to chat to me today. And obviously, we do normally focus on eating disorders in this podcast. But I think we'd be very naive if we kind of sat here and thought, oh, you know, eating disorders occur exclusively. Nobody ever has any comorbidities or anything like that. So um and because that's why it's, this is going to be such an interesting conversation to think about the comorbidities and how that impacts people and sort of like, I know I mentioned to you like the chicken and the egg situation. Um, but I guess to get started, do you want to give like maybe a bit of an introduction to yourself and, and how things like mental health and um, other aspects have impacted your life? Yeah, so basically I feel like I, ha- I started having eating disorder symptoms at the age of maybe 11 and mm. that kind of happened for 10 years. Um I really struggled with social interactions as a child and fitting in and everything. I was like such a high achiever. I was always getting really good grades up until about year nine, you know, and then you kind of hit the burnout stage Mm. and then everything comes tumbling down after that. But um, yeah, so I got diagnosed eating disorder about the age of 15, Uh, anxiety, you know, um, got low mood, neither depression when you're young. but then when I got to uni, my eating sort of spiraled out of control because obviously you do get lost between services and you fall through the net. So I did get hospitalised at that point. So I've had about three years leave of absence. So I'm in my final year now, but I've actually, this is my sixth year at uni. So I started in mm-hmm. 2018. So it's been a journey. But I finally have my autism diagnosis and ADHD diagnosis. But before that, I got sectioned for just like general mental health. 
um, after uni and they said that I had a personality disorder so I think everyone's very aware about the well maybe they're not but the overlap of symptoms of ADHD, autism and personality disorders and then I think eating disorders just can creep in with any diagnosis and I think we all know how common it is with autism especially um I know some hospitals are actually doing like an autism screening when they get admitted to an mm. eating disorder ward which I think is really amazing and making adjustments despite if they've got a diagnosis yeah. or not and I just think that's like a real step forward but yeah that's kind of a brief overview so I've been out of hospital in about a year and three months I was at a long-term placement so I was on a PD ward um for a year and but now I'm back at uni finished my second year last year which was an achievement I've never done a whole year without being sent home so that was a big achievement and now I'm my final year so and then obviously working for the NHS as well which is a real turnaround it's really funny actually because the other day I did a shift on the ward that I was first sectioned on as a support worker and it was just like oh my goodness what a real turn of events like being sat here as a professional now um madness but yeah real breakthrough I guess with the autism and ADHD diagnosis yeah I think you should be so proud of yourself like that is amazing to um have gotten through a year of university and shows how far you've come so absolutely like hats off to you I have a lot of questions from what you've just said um I guess the one I want to come to first because I feel like it maybe might not be the shortest answer but um you were saying about the fact that hospitals are now doing autism screenings when you go some of them yeah sorry uh when you go into hospital my only thought there is that a lot of the time specifically if we think about anorexia like because of the severity of these and sort of the the low energy things like that things do become very rigid and there's the symptoms that people show quite often mirror that of autism but somebody's not actually autistic it's just because they are in calorie restriction and stuff so how do they navigate I think it's more for reasonable adjustments than a diagnosis okay so it's more what adjustments can we put in place to make things a little bit easier rather than going for the full-blown diagnosis and I think a lot of people that do enter hospital have been through services so it could be that those that you know show very clear signs are the ones that go through for the full diagnosis Mm -hmm. yeah I think my I'm thing not would 100% just be... sure about it like I'm not 100 but I've just yeah. heard through the grapevine that this is something mm. that's being put in place I, I think it's a really difficult one and I don't want to kind of you know just say oh everyone that has anorexia that shows signs of autism it's just because they're energy deprived like I know that's not the case it's just it's interesting with the whole reasonable adjustments thing because I know that so I follow I don't know whether you follow her on um, Instagram but Lib Late 
Live Label Free talks a lot about autism and eating disorders and how recovery does actually need to look so different, you know, like having um, food at a specific time of the day, that needs to happen because for her, she would just forget otherwise. Um, But for me, somebody recovering from an eating disorder is actually really important, you know, at a certain point. Variability. Exactly. So it's like you put in the reasonable adjustments, but how can you know that that's not just holding someone back from recovery? No, completely. I think reasonable adjustments can look so different for different people. Mm. And I think especially with ARFID, um, that is quite common with autism, especially. Um, But yeah, I'm not too sure how it's going to look, but I think that professionals would probably have some idea of who mm-hmm. needs what yeah. you know so someone like yourself that needs that kind of variability compared to someone who is going to it's going to ruin the whole week because something's mm. out of what like out like two minutes late you know I think yeah it could that could be the case for someone with an eating disorder it might ruin their whole week because something's a little bit mm. different but it's when it's consistently even when with weight gain it's still distressing if yeah. something's a little you know and I, suppose so I think maybe it's looking really at hard the, to weight up maybe looking at the bigger picture of well as for somebody that isn't autistic it's probably just fixated around like food and exercise and that sort of thing whereas somebody that has autism it might kind of span over different areas of their life I don't yeah exactly know. and it's looking um, back to childhood as yes. well and you know yeah. how it's developed through time you know yeah so someone with an eating disorder might not have had that through childhood yeah but that's a really good point yeah yeah and then I wanted to because you said um people are quite aware but actually I am not aware at all of kind of the overlap between autism personality disorder and ADHD so I wonder if you could share a bit on that for us that'd be great yeah so there's a really um interesting like Venn diagram of how they all overlap so Mm. I think it's by misdiagnosis Monday um (laughs) so it's like impulsivity is obviously very common with personality disorders and ADHD um Oh, you put me on the spot here. Sorry, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, maybe you can say from your perspective. dysregulation, like that's very common with ADHD and autism. You know how someone's very emotionally mm. dysregulated, um, which may just people may just think that that's a personality disorder because they're happy one minute, sad the next. Mm. But it could be autism and ADHD. Um, I know for me, it's like relationships as well. Obviously, social situations are really difficult. And yeah, I've actually been pulled up from my facial expressions when I was in hospital, um, saying that it makes me unapproachable. But my facial expressions don't actually match what's going on in my head a lot of the time. Oh, wow. So that can make it really difficult within relationships. They may get the wrong idea. But I think it was really inappropriate for them to call me out on that and that just made me really distressed because obviously I want to be approachable this is the job I want to go into in the future it was the day I came off my section as well but you know wow yeah sorry (laughs) this was like you were a patient and you were called out on your facial expressions who called you out a clinical psychologist wow I know with like what aim she just said it makes me unapproachable and said that like she was basically just telling me to think about what my face is telling people 
and she had the autism diagnosis like they had the autism wow. diagnosis you know that the, what you get like the big feedback thing and at the end it says body language don't take body language as like as it is wow and so um yeah it's good that they took time to read that I guess yeah <laughs> I guess you know if you're going to try and support somebody and say you know like sometimes your facial expression maybe doesn't match how you're feeling and like we can work on that by then that I think is a, a good way to approach it but to just say to someone like work on your facial expression that would surely yeah. make you feel really insecure I like exactly. doubt what my face is doing all the time exactly and it's like I could look really miserable but like I'm happy in my head it's just that they don't link and mm. that's really common with autism um I think it's common in a lot of people but to, yeah to call me out on like one of the happiest days was yeah <laughs> really yeah. uncalled for but I love telling that story <laughs> <laughs> and when you say personality disorder just for people listening if they've not heard of that before like what yeah. what does that mean interesting question because it can mean a lot of different things to different people <laughs> So the ICD-11 has actually changed, which is basically it has a bunch of codes for people that don't know and it um, basically all the diagnoses. So it's now just personality disorder and then it's mild, moderate and severe. Um, before it was obviously emotionally unstable, antisocial. I think there was there's a list of like six or seven, but okay. um, now it's just personality disorder. But basically it's someone that's had like an invalidating past a maybe traumatic history have a lot of trauma they people can't understand how to regulate their emotions they don't know how to ask for help they don't know how to it's really difficult it's it's not that they don't know how to communicate well yeah they don't know how to communicate their needs basically and so there's a lot of self-harm suicidal ideation you might have eating disorder within it um there's a whole list of things like it's different for every single person so in the dsm-5 there's like over 200 ways ways to meet a diagnosis of emotionally unstable personality disorder um i think so yeah it's very different for different people but i think i probably did show signs of a personality disorder due to growing up until i was 21 or 22 undiagnosed neurodivergent Mm. in a neurotypical world like how invalidating is that Mm. like at school you're not getting your needs met all of that because I didn't have a traumatic childhood in fact it was quite the opposite so that's why I always question my diagnosis but now I don't think I would actually meet a diagnosis of a personality disorder and Mm. that is actually like a common thing that could happen but obviously people can relapse Mm. um so it's hard to take away that diagnosis so I think it's Mm. changed to like personality disorder traits now um, alongside autism and ADHD and previous eating disorder but yeah it's really difficult to say what it is because it's it just looks so different absolutely um and so were you um sectioned for having for the personality disorder or was that for the eating disorder um, so I was I went on a planned admission for my eating disorder and then the I don't even know how many times I've been admitted for my personality disorder that was yeah all the sections were for my personality disorder I got diagnosed actually after the 28 days of the section two um, okay. with a personality disorder because in CAMS they kind of say like emerging personality disorder because you can't really diagnose it until mm-hmm. someone is mature enough that 
you know they've got through puberty and all of that um so it's really difficult they shouldn't I believe they shouldn't really diagnose until after 25 because it's actually been shown that's when somebody's personality is developed but it is usually diagnosed a lot earlier so I'm sorry I'm just trying to piece my my head around this so you were misdiagnosed with something and then sectioned so would did you like do you think that the section was appropriate or do you think that that was based on a misdiagnosis I don't know whether it was a misdiagnosis like I I do think about it a lot because like I say the invalidation of growing up undiagnosed neurodivergent that is enough to Mm -hmm. develop like unhealthy coping mechanisms but at the time I probably did need to be sectioned just because for my safety basically and Mm. then obviously the long-term placement was for therapy so I received dialectical behavioral therapy which is um it's a approved I can't remember what the word is but it's like an approved um therapy for personality disorders and it was my third go at that because I have never been able to complete it before okay wow okay and were you did you have the eating disorder before that or after or was it during all three okay (laughs) so I had had 11 yeah so I had that was like the first sign that something wasn't right um I was in eating disorder services for years um, as an adolescent and as mm. an adult um, I only got discharged I think in 2020 or 2021 okay. um, which actually wasn't too long ago in the grand scheme of things mm. so it was just before I got sectioned in fact I was actually with them whilst I was on my first section then I got discharged because I was doing that therapy in the community and it was like a conflict but um, yeah when I was on the ward I did like exhibit eating sort of behaviours um but obviously you still get thoughts now like Mm. don't get me wrong I don't think it will ever go away um but I'm much better at managing it um I think it mostly comes from the autism so when there's change or when I'm distressed that's when I'll Mm. fall back into you know eating sort of thoughts and habits but I don't really engage in like restriction or anything anymore Mm. and when you were sectioned for the personality disorder was there any support for an eating disorder or was it kind of just very focused on the thing that you've been sectioned for is personality disorder therefore that's what we're going to support you with exactly so on the acute wards I was on um they basically just prescribed for differential um which and there wasn't much support unless there was some of the staff that got it on shift so it was really difficult at that time on the acute wards because no one really, they're not trained for eating disorders. It's um, quite a specialty. Mm. Um, but when I got to my PD ward, I they one of my medications wasn't put in my blister pack. So I went like a week and a bit and it just sent me off the rails because I didn't have this medication. Um, so I fell back into eating disorder hab- habits. But they said, because I, I think I struggled for like a week but then they like told me if I didn't eat or I well yeah if I skipped a meal then my BIP would drop which is behavioral incentive program I think so basically every week you're into free it goes up one and then the okay. privileges increase with the amount of incident 
instant weeks free um so yeah they said if I didn't eat then I my VIP would drop but there was no support in helping me to eat it was all PD um so yeah that was quite difficult and I didn't it's want my really... VIP to drop because I'm autistic and I need it to keep yeah. going up well I think even if you weren't autistic you know if you're in a hospital um you know for a mental health or if, even if you're just in hospital at the end of the day you want some luxuries you want some privileges and mm-hmm. so to just threaten somebody with if you don't eat we're going to take that away from you like that is not yeah. a long-term way to help support someone recover from an eating disorder it's so true because I had home leave every weekend so that would go if, like that's what my worry was that it would go yeah. or you'll lose your leave like local leave yeah. um so yeah I really did not want it to drop I mean my BIP was getting very high because I had I only engaged in problem behaviors for two weeks um like self-harm so and I was there for a year so it did get quite high yeah Yeah. and so I'm really interested just because I've I've genuinely not spoken to somebody before that um has been sectioned under the mental health act so I I hope you don't mind me asking questions but that's fine like what what happens in like the day-to-day routine there like you were there for a year so that's that's a long time to be somewhere I would imagine um yeah so the hospital I went to is actually two and a half hours away from home as well which makes which made it really really difficult because obviously I could only see my family at weekends whereas on my acute board it was around the corner so my parents could come mm. all the time um so yeah it was really difficult there wasn't really much to do um obviously we had a lot of groups so I think there was like three groups a week because it was a therapy ward um and then two like little mini groups a day um just like to set the goals for the day and then go through whether you'd achieve them uh but other than that it was kind of go on leave if you have it which not many people did um and it was always a case of just going shopping and yeah I'd probably go to Primark twice a day Um, wow (laughs) just because there's nothing really else to do but then on the weekends I did go home but yeah it was like you had to be up by nine like that's when the first group was Mm -hmm. and then obviously we had protected meal times um for lunch and dinner so you had to be on the ward for them um other than that there was not really much else we kind of tried to keep each other occupied but then on my acute wards there is really nothing to do there's no groups OT would come do some things but I'm not really a crafty person and so that's all that was really on offer um so basically I had to stay in bed a lot like a a lot when I was on the acute wards it was but then I I didn't have any motivation to do anything and also on one of the times that I was sectioned I actually had COVID the whole admission so I couldn't oh, even leave God. my room <laughs> wow so yeah it, it just um, it just doesn't sound the most like you said you know you, you didn't have motivation to do anything but I think we can all admit that like when we're in an environment that's not a stimulating environment it's very easy to quickly get stuck in a rut of like you, you know oh I don't want to get dressed today I don't want to shower today like I don't have anything to do therefore I'm just kind of going to sit around that sort of thing and that's all the kind of stuff that when we're struggling with our mental health that we're told not yeah. to do we're like really encouraged to go out get some fresh air like see friends do whatever you know it seems really strange that they wouldn't kind of have those activities for you to do 
Yeah, I think it's just because there's like quite a staff shortage. Mm. And on one of my queues, there wasn't a garden. You had to have leave to go down to the courtyard because it was upstairs. So that made it really difficult. But on my local acute ward, they did have a garden. So you could go outside if the weather was nice um, and play games and stuff. But it's all dependent on risk, whether you can leave the ward. And my risk was quite high on the ward. But I think that's just because I was so like frustrated and, like you say, just stuck in a rut. And mm-hmm. um, so that made it really difficult. And, yeah, there's they were quite short admissions, though, on the acute wards. But because mm-hmm. they were so regular, that's why I had to, like, I didn't have to be sent out of area. But that's why it was decided that it might be best, like, just get this. It was supposed to be 15 months, but I discharged myself early because I was frustrated. Um, but, yeah, so that's why it was best to go to the therapy ward. And luckily for me, it it was like the kick up the arse I needed. Mm. You know, I like I can't do this again. Like, I need to get yeah. back to uni. But for a lot of girls, they, because it was a female ward, you know, if they don't have goals, it's really difficult to have that motivation to get out. And I think when you're on a ward, everything's done for you. They tell you what you're doing when. That's why I found it really hard to come back to uni um, after my two-year yeah. leave of absence because I had to do everything for myself again. I had to, you know, set myself a routine, whereas on the ward, everything was just done for me and mm. everyone told me what to do when, which actually worked really well for me because I like being told what to do. Mm-hmm. Like, and, you know, being put that routine in place for me, which isn't a lazy thing, it's just okay someone's telling me I need to do this so this must be right I'm gonna I'm gonna follow that yeah whereas I can be really uncertain I'm like is this the right thing to do Uh, like you know it's really difficult so I think I think you just get so used to people doing stuff Mm -hmm. for you that it's really hard to get out the system yeah and I can imagine after 12 months or or whatever you know you've very much that's become your home like that that is a long enough period of time for that to be your safe place and I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about how you did then, because I, I, I'm sure a lot of people will have had that of sort of coming out of hospital and then being like, okay, kind of, kind of get how I'm meant to do it, like recovery in there. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting thing what you said there about like when someone tells you what to do, that's okay, you just go and do it. I'm very much like that in my recovery at the moment. If like somebody serves me a meal and they're like that's what you're eating I'm like okay well I've got like you know you've told me to do that and and you love me and you want to protect me so you know that's okay but I can't currently do that for myself and actually give myself something that's sufficient because it's like that's then coming from internal so how did you navigate sort of coming out of the hospital to then you know being like okay now I have to make the decisions and especially being away at uni as well because I can imagine you're not at home with family members yeah, I think it's really difficult. I, I absolutely hated being on that ward, um, like two and a half hours away from home. So it wasn't as difficult coming out of there. And I didn't have any, you know, bonds with staff. It, mm. And so that made it a little bit easier because I absolutely hated it. Hence why I discharged myself. I just got so frustrated that they were really invalidating um, saying I wasn't doing enough in the community when I really was. I was I couldn't do much more. I don't know what they wanted me to do, to be honest. Um, so yeah, it's just it. I needed to leave that environment, and so that made it so much easier to come home. I was mm. so much more relaxed. Um, yeah, I needed to be with my family and friends. Whereas coming out of the acute ward, I found that more difficult because I had good bonds with the staff, and obviously you know that's hard to leave behind but 
like now I don't get, now I don't get that like I don't feel like I need bonds with other people to feel satisfied in myself like I'm quite happy being alone now like I love spending time by myself more than anything like mm-hmm. I really love it whereas before I constantly needed reassurance I constantly needed like validation I don't anymore I, I can do that for myself which I think makes it really easier and I don't know how that happened I feel like after my diagnosis of autism and ADHD I felt like that was validating in it enough mm-hmm. and I felt like that is that was an explanation for me to the way that I was and that I'm not just like bad behaved or you know mm. risky for I don't know it just all kind of made sense and it was validating so and also I think medication the ADHD medication has really really helped me mm-hmm. like motivation wise so right. I can now set my own routine and I can you know and also because I drive now um I had like a bit of a time off driving but because I, I feel like I've got my independence back like I drive from uni back home all the time you drive around to work you know I I have that freedom again which I find really really helpful and I could mm-hmm. see an improvement in myself since driving again and the ADHD meds and it just all kind of like clicked into place and I think with all the adjustments at uni as well like I have really good support at uni and I think that has made I think it's just made it like mm-hmm. they really want to see me get through and I'm so grateful like I I literally couldn't ask for anything more from uni and I think that is really rare um mm. but to have me for six years that's quite <laughs> you know it's quite something and she, she's like my mental health advisor supported me the whole way through it and I honestly owe her so much because I really would not have got through uni without her mm. she helps me set routines she helps me well she just helps me with everything liaise with everyone you know and she just yeah. lets me rant to her it's just yeah it's just what I needed but I think obviously coming out of hospital it is really difficult but I did have that like transition period so I think I came out at the end of April and I didn't come back to uni until October so I had that kind of settling down period yeah. at home first before I had this independence again. Yeah it's really interesting what you say like things started to slot into place um, because I think one thing I've been finding recently is like the more that you see about the sort of freedom that you can have away from, you know, in my case, an eating disorder, but you start to, like, things start to unravel a bit and you're like, oh, like, I was actually way more connected in that conversation or, like, had so much more energy. Like, it's a really silly thing, but I have been staring at, I went on holiday, um, when did I get back? I got back a few weeks ago. The suitcases have been in my, on my landing for however long since I got back. I keep looking at them. I'm like, I just don't feel like I've got the strength to put them in the loft. And today I was like, I think I've got the strength. And then I was like, wow, this is because I've actually been looking after myself and fueling myself properly. And I think then when you start to see things that you're missing out on and that you can then do, and you know, it sounds really silly, but like the independence of me being able to put the suitcase away rather than relying on somebody else is really really nice and I think that's kind of what you were saying in terms of you know you started driving and then you could notice the independence and you start to feel like you're getting yourself back um and I think it's brilliant as well that your uni have been so supportive um and I'm just wondering I know you mentioned a few things but if you had any tips for you know if somebody's listening and maybe they work at university or with students or whatever like what would be your main advice for supporting somebody that 
has had difficulties with their mental health and is sort of in a similar position to you? I really just think validating someone and because I think a lot of people can be dismissed like you've made it to uni mm. you're you're fine like if you're at uni then like you can't suffer with mental health you know so I think it's just validating that whatever someone's going through is so real to them and so you know it's really affecting them and just validating that and being empathetic sitting in their shoes you know and just listening that is literally all my mental health advisor does is she just listens she doesn't try and solve any problems unless there is something that needs solving but (laughs) she doesn't she doesn't I don't know it's just that connection and it's more she understands I feel like she understands me better than I understand myself like everything Mm. she says back to me it's just like oh yeah you know (laughs) but but I think that kind of is probably because I've known her for five years so Mm. she's seen me at my worst and now she's seen me here and one thing I really hate is when someone says you've been through this before you can get through it again because I feel like that's quite invalidating because at that time it doesn't feel like you're going to get through it I would more say like I'm here to sit through you with this really bad time you know it's more you know just validating that time and just listening Mm. to whatever that's going on there and then I do just think listening is like the biggest help because some people just don't want answers they just want Mm. to get it out and to feel listened I think honestly that is a lot of the time like and I think that's um that's a really interesting thing that you say because I think a lot of the time when people think about mental health if they know that like a family friend or somebody is struggling with their mental health they're like oh my god I don't want to bring up a conversation because what if I say the wrong thing and ultimately like I don't think that you unless you say something like oh get over yourself like you know that sort of thing yes that's probably not the best thing to say sometimes not lift, not maybe get over yourself but I think sometimes people do need to kick up the arse to yeah. kind of move them on and and sort of get feeling better anyway that was a tangent um yeah I think often when we are struggling we do just need somebody to listen and somebody to care and validation I think is a really key word that you said there um you know what I know when I speak to my friends I'm not expecting them to know the answer I'm not expecting my therapist to have the answer Mm -hmm. I just want somebody to you know be able to sit there be able to listen make me feel cared for make me feel loved um and then you know sometimes I suppose with a therapist it might be that they help you to think about things from a different perspective than what you have done before but I think in terms of friends like you know just being there for somebody is is enough exactly I completely agree I was going to say something then but ADHD brain's gone um (laughs) oh gosh don't worry it's fine I wanted to ask you um we kind of touched on it a little bit you said about your misdiagnosis and stuff um one I have like a couple of questions around it but I'll go for this first how did that make you feel when you I suppose you were saying earlier that you did think that you had personality disorder, so it's maybe not a misdiagnosis but it was maybe that they'd missed the diagnosis of autism and ADHD like how did that make you feel when you realized or when they then came with the diagnosis I think it just like reiterated the invalidation it's Mm. like how could nobody have picked this up when it was so clear 
um because my parents had like sought about autism throughout my life it runs quite thick in our family right. and they mentioned it when I was under the priory and the priory were like no we need to sort of eating disorder out first and it's kind of like if you'd have acknowledged the autism maybe like that would have helped with the treatment of the eating disorder so it's it was it felt like a weight had been lifted when I was diagnosed but I hadn't really thought about whether I actually had a personality disorder I thought I had all three until maybe a year or so later and I was like mm. yeah but the overlap of symptoms maybe it is just autism mm. and ADHD but then the more I think about it I'm like is it is it not but in the grand scheme of things it doesn't matter it as long as I get the right treatment and I yeah. have obviously got to where I am I don't care what the diagnosis is mm. as long as I'm on the right path to being well and having the right support and adjustments then yeah call it what you want <laughs> honestly yeah. you know I, I really don't I don't mind obviously having the diagnosis for personality disorder with the stigma attached to it can be quite difficult mm. but I'm lucky enough to have not faced that much stigma touch wood because people don't need to know that I've got a personality disorder obviously I'm literally broadcasting it on here but I don't mind I don't, like if you want to think that I am xyz and you think that but I know the truth and I know mm. what I've been through I know where I've got to and I know all the hard work I put in in between so yeah. I don't I, yeah it's kind of one of them things I think it's so difficult there's obviously not a brain scan to diagnose any of these things mm. so it I think makes it difficult that's what makes it so hard isn't it is the whole one like everyone's experience is different and you you said earlier like there's like 250 different ways that you can mm-hmm. diagnose personality disorder which is pretty vast like that's that's quite a lot um and I find it really interesting I've I've like done a few podcasts where I've brought this up before in terms of like rather than diagnosing a specific eating disorder like we could say eating disorder full stop and then you support somebody with their specific symptoms you know you have like Hannah's profile and then you support Hannah with the individual things on her list because just because I have anorexia and then the person next to me like our symptoms could be completely different and it's almost I'm almost questioning whether like how helpful a mental health diagnosis is I think for some people it can be helpful because it can be a validating experience of like you know we've we've recognized x y and z in you and we think we have this but I think also there's a lot of potential of it going wrong in terms of a misdiagnosis people getting a certain type of treatment that actually isn't supportive for them but you know you think it is because the nice guidelines say that that's the right treatment for somebody and then also with the stigma attached to it I think that can then be really difficult because you can stigmatize yourself other people can stigmatize you as well and it was almost like you were saying like the crossover with so many different symptoms like you know there's the Venn diagram of personality disorder autism and ADHD but you know for me when my and anorexia gets bad my anxiety gets horrific and so does my mood I'm so low because I do not have the energy to be happy and I take antidepressants for that depression but I'm you know I'm not trying to invalidate anybody's experience here but it is very much like how much of it is for me personally is driven by the eating disorder because I know that once I start eating a bit more I'm I'm you know less anxious about I'm still anxious about food but I'm less anxious about life and I'm happier and stuff so 
how much of them then impact each other is, is crazy to think about as well. Exactly. And that's where I think my eating disorder came from. I think it was just from the invalidating school. <laughs> school was the most invalidating environment. Um, I think it was just like all of that. Obviously, neurotypical world, not for me. Um, I think that has led to me to just use like an eating disorder as like a coping mechanism, a way of control because the world was so out of control. So I think that stems from the autism. And then obviously, being autistic has obviously led to the PD because of how invalidating the world is. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of how how linked are they? It's kind of like we should have a list of symptoms. And it's kind of like, right, these all interlink. Which one do we try and target first? Um, yeah. But I know some services are actually moving away from diagnosis. So you don't need a diagnosis to access them, which is a massive step forward. Mm. But then obviously having a diagnosis opens up doors for some people. Um, it's just really hard because once you get that diagnosis, it's really hard to remove it. And mm. it's kind of like, we call it the sticky label because, you know, it's really hard to get rid of. But yeah, it it can be quite damaging. And this is what I was going to say. This might be controversial, but sometimes if someone is showing signs of an eating disorder, but maybe it stems from, you know, anxiety or something. But anyway, they get diagnosed with eating disorder. I know for me, like as soon as I got diagnosed, I was like, right, I need to conform to this diagnosis. <laughs> you know, I need to like live up to the name. Yeah. Which looking back, that I, I can hold my hands up and say that but I think it's I think that could be the case for a few people mm-hmm. that once you get a diagnosis you conform to that diagnosis I mean look at that study what was who was it oh my brain's not working today uh, Zimbardo where he put like um prison guards and then prisoners into a like a prison yeah. setting like as a study you know which one I mean and, and it's like how they conformed it and it turned so dangerous and unethical mm-hmm. It's kind of like, I feel like that could be the case for some diagnosis. Like people feel like they need to conform to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like based on the expectations of professionals around you. Yeah. Yeah. To stay in treatment, maybe. It's, yeah, really good point to stay in treatment because it's that you need that diagnosis in order to kind of open that door for you mm-hmm. I, I don't you know from my personal experience obviously this is very much anecdotal I I haven't had that with with anxiety of like feeling anxious enough but definitely with depression and with anorexia you know not feeling sick enough you know I'm not sad enough to have depression or you know I'm not kind of thin enough to have anorexia and I think the but then it's really difficult because I know when I was diagnosed with depression I was like ah like this isn't how everybody lives like people don't feel this intense sadness like all the time or like not even the intense sadness but you know that constant like dread or like worry about something like that's actually not how a healthy mind works so that was kind of validating but it's then where you draw the line of like which which mental health conditions are okay to diagnose, which aren't. Yeah. But I do like the idea of having like a list of symptoms and supporting somebody with that symptom because I think that fundamentally is a more long term approach. And I recorded a podcast this week, which will actually be out after this podcast, um, with Richard from the Eating Disorder Recovery Clinic, and he said that their approach there is very much a stepped approach in terms of they will like target one thing like the psychology based thing 
and then they'll work on a bit of the foodie stuff and then they'll work on another thing and I think that stepped approach allows you to rather than trying to tackle everything at once yeah it's specific to you so your individual behaviors but it also like gives you time to actually settle into it and rather than just like okay here is the thing that you've relied on for all these years to get by and now you've not got that anymore so then you turn to other coping mechanisms which are even you know could be deathly well eating sort of deathly but you know it could turn Mm. quickly Yeah. yeah I completely agree it's it's really difficult I think diagnoses are important but at the same time if you can access a service if there are services that act, that are accessible without one, I think that is just invaluable. And like, I, I do agree with the SEPT approach, but at the same time, we need like looking at the whole picture, like every single problem, you know, instead, you know, if you've got like anxiety, depression, eating disorder, autism, it's like all of them need to be looked at at once. And then where is it coming from? Mm-hmm. Which can be really difficult because they just happen so quick. But yeah, it's a it's a really difficult one. Um, Isn't that really just... overwhelming as well to have all of those diagnoses? Um, I mean, I don't have them all anymore, which is yeah. great. But like I say, I don't really. It doesn't bother me like the diagnosis mm. side of things as long as I had access to the treatment that I needed. Yeah, then it was. But like I say, I do think I can come. I do think I conformed to the eating disorder diagnosis because Mm. I do think it was due to like autism and change that's Mm. why I used eating disorder as like a coping mechanism but then I felt like I had to live up to the diagnosis of anorexia nervosa Mm. so it's um, a sticky situation I guess but I'm glad that it's no longer a conflicting issue for me. Did you find that as you like began to learn more about your autistic traits and your ADHD traits and sort of you know put in place things to allow you to to utilize them rather than them like getting in the way of life did that improve your eating disorder um to be honest I don't really know at what point my eating disorder improved I do think it might have been medication please some medication can cause weight gain and I feel like that kind of cured the malnourishment so Mm -hmm. I could kind of think straight and food wasn't an issue because my body was just so hungry from the medication but I think understanding I think the the year away at at the placement definitely Mm -hmm. gave me a year to think about myself and learn my limits and learn what triggers me and you know where what behaviors come from where so I feel like that was useful I did that myself (laughs) I didn't it wasn't the hospital I don't want to give them credit for that because that was me um good on you (laughs) oh I don't really want to give them credit for me but um yeah I feel like that was a good year to think about myself it's like kind of like when people go to a retreat (laughs) you know like a Mm. yoga retreat but um I think it really did help because I learned a lot about myself, especially being away from home and having to do a lot for myself. I had to do my own washing because when I was in my acute ward, I just sent my washing home with my mum. So, and like cooking meals for myself because I did start self catering and then self medicating. So, I think, yeah, it, 
it was uh, beneficial to learn more about my autism, even though it was dismissed at that hospital. But I knew, at least I knew, and I could work on it. Yeah, I think, like you said, just that validation of, oh, it makes sense as to why I have, you know, why I do these things in a certain way or why this makes me yeah. feel more comfortable. Um it absolutely makes sense that like once you've got that which is why you know diagnosis can be so helpful um and and even ones you know because I I do think that like things with um you know like neurodiversity and stuff are very different to mental health conditions because mental health conditions are something that you're you know hopefully going to recover from whereas neurodiversity is something that um you know you are learning well you learn coping mechanisms to support you um you're not going to recover from it um but yeah thank you so much India I don't know where that time has gone but we're going to talk about social media know, as we've well had so much but... to talk about but <laughs> we'll have to do another episode because Part um yeah, <laughs> it will get too long but thank you so much um oh, no, I'm really speaking to you I'm really grateful for you sharing kind of your experience and you know I'm sure that will absolutely help a lot of people where can people go to find out more about you and the work that you're doing um so I'm on TikTok at India Blakemore same for Instagram same for Twitter I post more worky things on Twitter um don't have many followers oh sorry it's called x now (laughs) if you didn't know (laughs) um but yeah I post a lot of all of what's going on over there haven't had much time social media though recently it's all been a bit doesn't sound like it with all your jobs and uni (laughs) and all that I know London tomorrow but yeah spreading yourself thin well thank you so much um go and have a nice restful evening oh it's been lovely thank you yeah thanks india if you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe eating disorders are crippling illnesses but with the right support they can be recovered from we really hope you enjoyed this episode but if you require more support right now please look into charities such as first steps and beat for support or talk to someone you trust